Real Collections with Edward Beasley. Come on. Come on. Come on. Look. Look. I know you're afraid, all right? We all are, all right? We just... We gotta get the hell out of here, okay? Now, what the hell happened back there? What exactly did you see? I saw a fucking head on a stick. Did you see anybody else? No. I didn't see anybody or, or anybody. Everybody's average family. Two unmanageable teens, bumbling father, and his ever-present whining wife. Meet the Benzigers. They think they're taking a trouble-free trip to a mountain resort. Think again. This winter wonderland is a perfect setting for the evil rituals and unorthodox traditions that take place. This is no holiday. It's holy hell and no one has a prayer. A bloody transformation of roles turns the tortured teens into adults themselves. Some kids would kill to be adults. These kids may have to. This synopsis on the back of a VHS copy of the 1988 film, The American Scream, was enough to sell me on renting it as a kid. It made enough of an impression on me to remain in the back of my mind well into adulthood. I always thought of it as this hidden gem because I didn't know anyone else who had seen it. It sadly falls into that category of films that never transitioned from VHS. Once I started committing to the idea of this podcast, I made a list of the various topics I wanted to research. The American Scream was always at the top. So I figured the best place to begin was to track down the film's director, Mitchell Linden. I pretty much went to art school. I started in, at Cleveland Institute of Art in Cleveland, Ohio. thought I was going to be a painter. They had some fairly decent motion picture equipment, which nobody used. Nobody even knew how to use. So I started playing with that. So I, I was really kind of into abstract, experimental filmmaking. You know, they were non-narrative films. I was really interested in, like I say, mashing up. Um, you know, this is before there was all the, the CG stuff, so you couldn't... You didn't have Mayas, and you didn't have non-linear editing and post-production, so I was really interested. I was painting film. I was animating and interspersing animation with still film and really experimenting with the medium itself and how far I could push it chemically, photographically, and visually. As a matter of fact, the, the technical training was almost non-existent. I spent a lot of my own time studying the manuals and Eventually, I spent a lot of time at the lab. I wanted to understand every bit of that. And, you know, I was editing. I wanted to understand exactly how uh, an avid works or how film was processed. So I had a part of me that was always really into the, the technology behind the medium. I didn't want to be ever a slave to what I didn't know. So I was always really curious to invest in understanding the tools at a level that I would manipulate them instead of them manipulating me. Eventually went to grad school in San Francisco at the Art Institute there and started shooting movies with a, a Nikon camera with a motor drive and animating the missing frames. 
After graduating from the San Francisco Art Institute, Mitchell decided to head south and figure out what was next. So I went to L.A. and I worked on a variety of films doing whatever I could get hired, I think. I managed to skip ever being a PA, which is good because I think I would have lasted about 15 minutes. Um, I fell into becoming a script supervisor, which I really liked because I found, especially working on low-budget movies, the directors often were, I'll call it, less than skilled. So being able to be that person on the set that helps them figure out how to deconstruct a, a three-dimensional space into a two-dimensional medium and how it will edit together later. I got into editing and I pretty much took anything that came my way. And like I say, then kind of went with MTV, I really kind of set my flag in the, the music video world for quite a while. The opportunity for guys that made sort of odd creative kinds of films um, suddenly had a home in directing music videos. So I did quite a bit of that. You know, the thing is, in those days, like every band that got signed got a music video because MTV was everything. So it's like 90% of the bands I worked with, you never heard from again. I had this kind of sleazy producer approach me with a script called Death Putt. And it was about murder on a miniature golf course. And I met the creative director at IRS Records, who at the time, you know, they were breaking acts like Police and R.E.M. and some pretty interesting bands. He, he just loved this idea of Death Putt. So he started making posters for it. And the two of us started hanging out together and found we had a very common, twisted sense of humor. And he had a band called Dread Zeppelin, which made Led Zeppelin music, reggae style, with a fat Elvis impersonator as the lead singer. And thought I would be the perfect guy to direct their music videos. So I ended up doing about four for them and became, over time, sort of the house music video director at IRS Records. And then and some of those people moved to different labels. I picked up work at Capitol and Rhino and so on and so forth. There was one of the Dread Zeppelin videos called Heartbreaker at the end of Lonely Street, which got a fair amount of MTV play. And what I did was I, I wanted it to reflect those old Ed Sullivan 1960s TV experiences. So I got what's called a kinescope, which is what they used quite a long time ago to transfer um, videotape to film. And I kinescoped what I did. So I shot on video, and then I kinescoped it to film, and then I transferred it back to digital. So I had that weird kind of stretchy, break-up-y kind of thing that a kinescope does, uh, mixed with live concert footage and such. But And it was it's a very twisted video. Then eventually I, through an odd set of circumstances, got to direct a feature film called The American Scream. You know, it's a difficult thing to walk into directing a film. I wasn't a writer, really, so it's not like I, I, I wrote this terrific script of a very kind of visual filmmaker. It was around this time that Mitchell would cross paths with producer Jerry Tenenbaum, 
also known as Itzik Tenenbaum. He was an adult filmmaker who directed and produced titles under the name Jerome Tanner for his video distribution company, Western Visuals, throughout the 1980s. Towards the end of the decade, the state of California wanted to crack down on the adult film industry. Tenenbaum and others found themselves being arrested through the application of pandering laws in an effort to prosecute the industry by likening it to prostitution. In a First Amendment victory, these convictions were successfully overturned in court and led to a wider acceptance of adult filmmaking. Perhaps after the chaos of Tenenbaum's battle with the state of California, he saw an opportunity to go mainstream. In an interview with the LA Times in November 1987, Tenenbaum said, I looked around one day and told myself that society has changed, and that the way society perceives these movies has changed. Also, I realized I didn't want to do this with my life. Concurrent with Western Visuals, Jerry owned the distribution company 21st Genesis Video for more mainstream titles. He acquired the license to such films as Robert L. Burroughs' The Milpitas Monster, Don Kiesler's Bog, and Mario Bava's Hatchet for the Honeymoon for home video releases. The direct-to-video business model was a burgeoning market in the 80s, and 21st Genesis was the perfect platform for him to produce his first mainstream feature. He would bring his business partner, Lori Levine, along with him. He fancied himself a director, and he had a children's film called The Night at the Magic Castle, with uh, Ernie Johnson was the star, who was who was a name at, you know coming out of the '60s, who was on a TV show called Laughing. So, anyways, this was a children's story. It took place with a, a sort of a battle of magicians shot in the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. The film would have the honor of being the very first feature shot inside the Magic Castle. Second assistant director Joe Charbanic. But I remember we, we were bragging that we were. I, mean, I do remember it was a big deal at the time. And, uh, and I knew we had, we had to play by a lot of their rules. It was a real pain. And I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know how... It could have been one of those jobs where they said, hey, this, well, never, we're never going to do this again. <laughs> Night of the Magic Castle was a pretty easy shoot. It was just the hours were long. The, the horrible thing about that shoot was we had to shoot the bulk of it at the Magic Castle. And the Magic Castle would only let you shoot from 2 a.m. to 4 p.m. So our call times every night were 2 a.m. And we'd shoot till around 2 in the afternoon. We'd wrap out. We had to wrap out complete every night because they, they stayed open for business. So every night I'm driving to work at 2 a.m. when all the drunks are coming home from the bars. And you're like trying not to die going to work. I remember that. And so that schedule, I believe we did two weeks there. But it was brutal. Like, you'd go to bed, you'd get home, go to bed around 4 in the afternoon, sleep all night because you were exhausted, and then get up for work at 1 a.m., take a shower. I mean, that screwed up my clock for weeks. And then the cool thing about working at the Magic Castle is I learned a lot of the secret passages. You know, you'd be behind the bar, ringing a light, you'd flip a thing, and then a bookshelf would flip open or something. It was really funny. You know, it was, it was, you found a lot of trap doors, you found a lot of secret hallways. And we had to sign disclaimers. We, could, we couldn't talk about it, so I can't tell you where that switch is shortly into production director jerry tenenbaum would begin to find himself in over his head the production was not going well because it was being directed by the guy that owned the company he was the producer and he wanted to be the director and he wasn't a very skilled director so the project manager called me and said hey could you come in and 
fix this. The producer, Lori, she knew Mitchell from something else. And she goes, well, I'm going to bring in this guy who's really a director, but we're going to have him first AD. And I said, that's perfect. And then I said, well, of course, he's going to want to replace me and bring in his own second AD. That's just the norm. I expect that. And they said, no, we're going to fight for you. We love you. So he was forced to use me. So the girl he wanted to replace me with was the girl who AD'd uh, American Scream. So he wanted to replace me with her. And he, they said, no, no, give this guy a chance. He goes, okay, I'll give him a couple of days. And me and him hit it off immediately. And it was smooth sailing from there on in. In order to help the production move more smoothly, Mitchell came up with an idea. I, I essentially took tore the script in half. I said, all right, Jerry, you take half and I'll take half because the Magic Castle's big and we'll both shoot simultaneously because it's the only way we're going to get through this location in the time you have allotted. So I directed half the movie. He directed half the movie. We mashed it together. I edited it. And he got through it and actually saved. He had about $220,000 left on his budget. So he said, hey, I'd like to pay you back if you can, you know, I need a horror film. If you can give me a horror film um, that you can do for this kind of money, I will give you the money. So I go, yeah, sure, I got a script. Of course, I didn't. I was getting married, like, literally a week later. So I got married. My wife and I went on our honeymoon, and I spent the time basically writing a script from one end to the other on a legal pad. Joe Charbanek would end up remaining in business with Mitchell's new as-yet-untitled film. So back then, one thing we learned, and it's, it's, it's a lesson I've stuck with to this day, is if you're going to start a project like this, you find the locations first, then you write the script. During the filming of Magic Castle, Mitchell became friends with cinematographer Brian England, who would go on to shoot such genre classics as Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, I, Madman, and Cheerleader Camp. A helpful tip from England would end up guiding the as-yet-untitled horror film in the right direction. He had told me about this location that they saw, which was an entire town up in the Sierras above Bakersfield. So we location scouted, and we found this town called Camp Nelson. It's in Northern California somewhere. I've never been there since. And we walked, we walked around the town. Okay, there's a church. Okay, there's a, there's a diner. Okay, there. it's got a motel. It's got a church. Um, it's got a couple stores. So I wrote down the list of available locations, talked to the local real estate agent who was trying to sell this entire town. And he goes, I'll tell you what, if you put your crew up in my rental houses, I'll give you the town for free. So the script was basically written to map to the available locations. So that makes the money go a lot further when you're in low-budget films. If, if all the look locations are already in the script that you know you can have it's it's easy going with the filming location in play it was now time to actually write the script here's phil hopper who shares story credit with mitchell mitchell and i met at the san francisco art institute when we were both in the mfa program in filmmaking and uh we gravitated to each other we have similar senses of humor when mitchell and noreen moved to la uh, i followed them within a few months ended up uh, you know, working, actually I ended up living in, a, in an in-law apartment underneath the hillside bungalow that they rented in, in Silver Lake. So Phil is my good buddy from film school or art school in San Francisco, and I was staying actually at the actress Stockard Channing's house in Maine. 
for our honeymoon. And Phil lived not too far in um, Brooklyn. So he drove up and spent about three days and we grabbed a stack of index cards and concocted the story. So he helped me out there. So we've got the location, we've got the writers, it's a horror movie, and it's the 1980s. So what's the movie going to be about? Well, you know, there's the whole cliche about, you know, there's this group of teenagers having their normal teenage paranoid fantasies, but they're true, <laughs> was the idea, was the premise, really. <laughs> and that's kind of where we worked, worked from. We got together and we threw some ideas around, like, you know, the clown hitchhiker and, you know, a few other things to add some touches of surrealism, I suppose, to it. To it. We'd come up with this story idea and had uh, fleshed out treatment and had 50 or 60 pages of, of a script that still needed work. And, and I ended up leaving that with Mitchell and he fleshed it out a bit and then he took it back and, and completed it. We, we did pride ourselves on, on, on coming up with first kind of um, a teen slasher comedy. I mean, we thought that was pretty, a pretty clever genre to be um, part of uh, inventing. <laughs> Mitchell returned to California with his screenplay for the American Scream and submitted it to Jerry Tenenbaum for his approval. He said, okay, let's do it. So that's how I got into directing a feature film. And then, you know, I had... Like I say, about $220,000 to make an entire movie, and I had to use SAG talent. It had to be thrifty and, and clever about how to do it, which is part of the reason. I mean, no excuses, but it's one of the reasons it's no masterpiece. I mean, uh, I'll readily admit it. It's, uh, it was a script written in about 10 days uh, based on a pre-existing location as a motivator. Now that Mitchell was greenlit to direct his first feature film, it was time for the next step casting. The film's eclectic mix of talented performers is one of its most endearing qualities. Hans Marr, who is kind of a friend of mine in sort of the L.A., kind of Silver Lake Echo Parky art scene of, of that time, um, who had done the, uh, he was the model for what was called the Domino's Pizza Noid, which was a claymation done by Will Denton Studio up in Portland. And he's just like this master of movement. And I had done a promo for uh, another horror film called Time of the Beast. And I said, Pons, would you put on the Beast outfit and do the, the Beast thing? And he goes, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll do that if you'll put me in a real movie. So, uh, so that's how that came about. Pons Marr as the film's patriarch, Ben Bensiger. It was like a teaser he'd made for some film I think he was trying to get going. So I went like part of a day and they dressed me as some kind of big rat or something. And I, <laughs> I never even saw this shot, but it, it took hours for them to put whatever the hell on me they put on. And they just had me kind of run down a hallway toward a camera. I don't think you ever really completely saw this character. So I'd, I'd done this as a favor for him at some point. And then he brought me in to read for this part of this goofball dad. Hey! Let's go, you two. Life's too short to spend in bed. Dad, we'll meet you after breakfast. No way, big guy. You two are going to need a big breakfast. Looks to me like you two got 30 feet of driveway to shovel. Oh, brother. What's the matter, Larry? You're a young, healthy guy. <laughs> Up and at him. Huh. If I remember correctly, I was kind of 
Uh, you know, my daughter wasn't even four yet. Her mom and I weren't doing well. We were kind of falling apart as a couple. That had been in process. And then this goofy little film came up. And I thought, well, this will give me something to do. Take me out of town for a little while. And uh, <laughs> I'll be the star. <laughs> Kevin K., who I really enjoyed working with, you know, he just made you smile to look at him. Kevin K. as Larry, one of our put upon teenagers. I love that character. And I love being able to, like, go, like, cuss and then go, hey, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Or, like, you're, I'm crazy. Don't fuck around, man. I'll cut you so fucking fast you never seen it coming, motherfucker. Hey, relax, man. I was just kidding. Go ahead, take the bed. My agent and manager at the time uh, uh, submitted me for the movie. And I went through the process, and I met Mitchell. I read with them, and they liked me for the... Because the, the character Larry is very... It was a really good role. I get a lot of fun things to say. I, gotta, I get a, like, I get a cuss. I'm kind of like a little crazy and psychotic. So it was really fun. And then I even got to be Amish. It was such a great role, and I had fun with it. And it's really funny, too, because I had, I had a lazy eye, and I was very self-conscious about it. I think I said something to Mitchell while we were shooting. Goes, Kevin, that's part of the reason why we hired you. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. And then I have a, um, I grew up with a lot of um, actors in Santa Monica. So um, one of my good friends is Ramona Stavis, Charlie Sheen's brother, and Martin Sheen's son. So Martin Sheen's a very good, uh, good uh, friend of mine too. He's like a father to me. He was telling me, don't do it. I wanted to stay with it, kind of like with Barbara Streisand, have a nose, but I ended up getting it operated on after, like, five or six years later. But that's the reason why I think he hired me was because of my lazy eye. <laughs> I was very self-conscious about it, and it's funny because I think Mitchell picked up on it right away, you know? <laughs> we probably spent, I don't know, two weeks in pre-production. We had this kid. He looked like he was maybe... 22 years old. I mean, he looked like Howdy Doody. He was this little redheaded, freckled, sweet-faced kid who, who said, I'll do the casting for you. And it turns out he was going to AA meetings all over LA. And he like knew everybody through AA meetings. I finally found out the kid never even drank. He had no AA problem at all. He was just doing this for networking. So he's the one that started bringing these people in. And I've always been a fan of, you know, Russ Meyer and sort of B-picture-y kind of stuff, which is why I was attracted to, uh, we got like Edie Williams, who was Russ Meyer's wife for a while. And, and one of his stars got her to be in it. And then Edie Williams being in the film, who, you know, I was kind of afraid of. <laughs> I mean, first of all, this is like Edie Williams, you know. She's she she's not a small woman in like many ways. For me, this is like God. This is like really, this is history. This this person being here, and then what she had to do in the film was just pretty minimal. It was interesting just being able to be around her. She also she's just lovely, just a lovely person. 
you know, still doing what she needed to do to just try and uh, keep moving forward with her life as a woman who was aging in the uh, entertainment industry. Mitchell would end up casting another B-movie staple, George Buck Flower, one of the preeminent character actors of the time, appearing in the films of such genre greats as Don Edmonds, Matt Simber, John Carpenter, Stu Siegel, and Jim Wynorski. I knew who he was, but I, you know, I wanted to meet him. And he came in, read the part, cracked me up. For one thing, his voice you could hear around the block. Yeah, he just had this big, rich voice. Larry. Don't worry, we'll be obedient. Just like old Blue here. Stay, Blue. You're in great danger. No shit, Sherlock. You see this? They did that to me. They, they think I don't remember, but I, I do. And they killed my children. And um, he just instantly picked up on the part, you know, found it, found the camp that it was. And uh, that was it. I didn't even look any further than that. He always sort of brought his own thing to it. Um, you know, was, was, was confident. So anytime, you know, I shot a scene with him, he, I gave him an outline where I'd like it to go. And he just did his thing. I mean, he was clearly the pro on the set. I remember George, sure. Yeah, he's quite a character. I was not close to him, but I do remember, I think it was Buck Flowers who told the story about, I don't know if he's working with him or working on something and maybe Buck got cut out or whatever, but apparently they were not paying people and Ned Beatty grabbed the exposed film from one day and held it hostage, and, and the producer called him up, and basically Beatty said, you can kiss my ass, and hung up on him. I, I don't know. That might have been Buck that told that story. I'm not sure you can verify any of that, but that might have been a story that came via Buck. <laughs> he was kind of like a, pretty much like a celebrity on the set for me, because I was in production at the time, and I looked up his credits, and so I picked his brain a lot. I just remembered he would tell stories and he was just, he had a great smile and he, he was really, I mean, he he was just fun to work with. I remember when he would say these things when we would, when we first arrived in, in the film um, and then behind the scenes, he was just great. And then I remember him telling us that he did Back to the Future. And like I told you before too, every time I see that scene on the bus stop, it's such a great, and then I just Googled him after we spoke, and it was neat to see all the stuff that he did. I know, I think I saw him in something else too, but he had that face, and he was in everything, you know? You know, like actors who just have a lot of credibility, and he could speak for hours, and you would just want to listen to him, like like with the fire burning, you know? It, it's just really cool, but um, I, I didn't have that much with him. I think his, his filming was short, but he, I would just remember all the good experience with him, you know? And he was just a, the character was a really cool but weird character, you know, and he, he did it well. Yeah, uh, you know, Buck was great. I was going to say he's like his character, but he wasn't like a quiet psycho. He was this real, just down to earth. He was funny, you know, he tells stories about different films he'd worked on. A real professional. I think his, his talent was kind of somewhat uh, 
disarming in the sense that he showed up and he did his thing. And I mean, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with him other than meeting him and working with him on this movie. And then later I find out all these others, like, God, this guy's done tons of stuff and you know, all these different films, you know, but just sort of the best and kind of a professional. He, he doesn't get in the way. He doesn't make it about him. But when he's there doing his job, he's just so good and believable. I really didn't know. It's like, is this guy an actor? Or, did, or is this, you know, because they were pulling in various people. I'm, I'm sure this film had like basically no budget. And there would be people who were just pulled in to be in the film who either were around or part of the crew or, you know, it's like, I didn't know. Like, I, I couldn't imagine he was a street person up in this location we were filming. <laughs> there weren't exactly streets. <laughs> but yeah, Buck was great. Other members of the cast included Gene Sapienza, Matt Borlangi, and Kimberly Kramer, who would become more well-known in the late 90s when she changed her professional name to Riley Weston and made headlines when she presented herself as a 19-year-old screenwriter and ended up working for the television series Felicity, when in fact she was in her early 30s. And it was so funny when that all came out. It was like, oh my God, this woman's pulled the wool over our eyes. How could you do this? This is so terrible. And it's like, I mean, you know, excuse me, but fuck you guys. You know, she saw what the game was, knew they would never even look at her if they knew her real age. And she's like, I look really young. I'm going to be a young person so I can get work. And she was obviously talented, not just because she was young, which was great for them, you know, and then going, look at us. We have an actual teenager on our writing staff, and she's good. You know, and, yeah, I thought that was that was so weird that it, it, it then became like a problem. They should have said, wow, what a smart person. You know, she gamed the game. You know, and also she fooled these people. So they don't like that. But it's like, you know, well... Don't make it so she has to. You know what I mean? Another interesting character who would join the cast, a Night at the Magic Castle co-star, Blackie Dammit. Yeah, obviously, you know, he's Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers' father. You know, they, they dated, like, women the same age. So I was always fascinated by the fact that Blackie always had very young, pretty girlfriends, and he was like a total rock and roll kind of guy. Blackie Dammit, born John Kiedis, was a working actor in Hollywood who appeared in such films as Dr. Detroit, Meatballs 2, and Lethal Weapon. He happened to be neighbors with Lori Levine, Jerry Tenenbaum's business partner. When A Night at the Magic Castle originally came about, Lori approached Blackie for the role of the film's villain Blackstar, the evil magician. And I thought he was pretty good, you know, he had just the right amount of camp again, and but he was kind of scary. Very intimidating and really cocky, but really nice to be, but very, very weird, but good weird, right? But like really, really strange. <laughs> you know, he did his movie, he, he played his character, so you didn't really get to know, was that Blackie or was that the character he played? He's, he was, you know, another one of these people who was just, he was a really sweet guy. Uh, you know, I didn't know who he was. And just hanging out with him and then him talking about, uh, you know, he talked about growing up in Hollywood and his son. And I knew who the, the Chili Peppers were. 
And I was like, oh, that's cool, you're dead. So then he told me that when his son was like really little, you know, Blackie would dress kind of, you know, nice brim hat and coat and have a, he'd had a little mustache. He would dress his son up exactly the same way and he would paint a mustache on him. And they would go to clubs. I mean, you know, he'd tell me these stories and it was just like, wow. You know, on one hand I thought, that's got to be the best thing in the world, like the coolest dad ever. I mean, I don't know how it all plays out in one's life in Toto. Calm, low-key, kind of a quiet guy, really sweet guy. But I really, I really found him to be very, uh, you know, it's funny, you don't know what someone's like until you're actually with them and hanging out and either working or, yeah, he was just real, he was pretty self-contained, quiet. Uh, he really knew his stuff when he needed to do his scenes. He was, he was right there. You know, once again, like real professional. Yeah, on screen, he can be very intimidating. You know, I don't know, maybe if you backed him in a corner in real life, he, <laughs> he, he could be, but he was, I don't know, he seemed like kind of a gentle, caring person. And I, I remember reading something about him uh, while I was doing it. It said that he was raising wolves and then kind of wolf hybrids and that he, he preferred being around these animals than with people. And I know I've, I've been around some people that are like that. There have been some, some people I've worked with on films who are actual animal handlers. And they, they weren't comfortable being around people. They really were in their comfort zone with animals. And, you know, he may be someone who's a little more like that. So he's like, the animal world just makes more sense to him. It's a little more clearly defined. Blackie would reflect on American Scream in his 2013 memoir. Although A Night at the Magic Castle hadn't been a huge success, the company had made enough money to reinvest in another project. And they asked me to play a part in The American Scream a horror comedy movie that had its tongue firmly implanted in a cankered cheek. I was the only actor they carried over. No audition, just the job. I was the enigmatic pastor of a small church high in the Sierra Mountains about 250 miles north of Los Angeles. I was third build, and you already know my stuff, but this was my character's description at the Cannes Film Festival publicity booklet. As a man in a wide-brimmed hat, a dagger-wielding, ominous figure who radiates evil while lurking in the shadows of a very strange town, his character will remind the viewer of a young Vincent Price so chilling in his presence in the movie. He was kind of a fun guy to hang around, which was a precursor to be on a movie that shot in 11 days in the mountains. With the cast in place, it was now time to assemble a crew who would relocate to Camp Nelson, some 200 miles north of Los Angeles. Brian as a DP, and Dan Gillum as a gaffer, and Mark Daniels as a key grip. I mean, those guys are they're stellar. They're stellar crew. I mean, really just, you know, in terms of the depart- those department heads. And then they got loyal people to come and staff their departments, and uh, it all went surprisingly well. It's, it was a bunch of knuckleheads. A bunch of the crew were from Blue Velvet, so they were all they all thought they were rock stars. Itzik was a producer. Lori Lori was a producer. She also did script super. Lori's the uh, the one who introduced me and Mitchell, and she she was really great. She was she was uh, very loyal to us, and she was hardcore. And actually, that's where I learned how to script super. Like I learned how to do boards and. I worked on the schedule with CC and Lori, so I, that's where I, you know, it was a learning, ex- I was a, it was a paid learning experience for me because I was very young at the time. So it was my second UPM job ever. Again, I was a little underqualified. I was pretty new. I was a little greed. So, but Lori was uh, real hands-on. 
it, Itzik, Itzik was hardly there. He he lost interest pretty early, so he would come and go. But Lori was uh, Lori was his right hand, who she's since passed away a long time ago, unfortunately. So we all kind of knew what we were doing, but it was it was it was pretty pretty mishmash of just crazy people. It was all people that were in the beginning of their careers. We just had it was actually an incredible amount of fun. The shoot went really smoothly, but it's just like the the behind the scenes stuff was a little chaotic. When we went to that town on the location scout, we it was very very conservative. It was a Bible thumping kind of town, and so we downplayed at least I did what we were what we were intending to do. I was like, you know, it's just going to be you know we're all up and comers. It's a film, blah blah blah. And I remember after I remember after that spiel, the very next day or very soon after, the art department drove up to start prepping, and I see their big truck coming over the horizon, and they have a, a doll crucified on the grill of the truck, and the two gay art department guys with their crazy hairdos and shit pulling up, and all the local town people like, so everything I said just went out the window at that point. <laughs> And I was like, uh, oh, no, I go, they're just joking. They're just joking. And so I walked up, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? They, they had apparently had a really bad day in prep. So that was their F you to me, the, like to crucify the doll. Like, this is what a bad day we had on this movie already. So it, that was the first, that was my first memory of the town, maybe getting a glimpse of what they were in store for. <laughs> So I just remember that, like, it was like a movie in itself, just that truck coming over the hill and I'm talking to a local and I just see this doll. I go, oh, that's the art department. They got a sense of humor, you know. We had dinner together on the first night and then it was pretty much a go. You know, everyone knew what they were in for. It's like, we're, we're going to work hard and it's probably going to be some in, impossible, you know, situations or hours or whatever, but it seemed to be pretty... Pretty even-toned production, from what I can remember. Lord knows, maybe I'm blocking out a lot. On day one, Mitchell and producer Jerry Tenenbaum would find themselves at odds with each other. We had a little bit of a falling out during the shooting because since I had stepped in to become his uh, first assistant director and to edit and help him get through his movie, he wanted to return the favor and be my first AD. But he had never done that before in his life, and I'm trying to shoot a feature film in 10 days. I had to replace him after the first day and call C.C. Uh, Barnes, who's very experienced first AD. We had C.C. on standby. We look, it's going to AD, it's not going to work out. We're going to book you and get pack your bags. That's We had her on standby in L.A. And then we just like, okay, after day one, okay, get your get your butt up here. Because the first day was a disaster. He, he, you know, he just wasn't a first AD by any means. And uh, and it needed a first AD. There was a lot of logistics on this. So, yeah, he got replaced pretty quick. And we, we tried, if I remember, I think we tried to let him quit. But we didn't want to waste time. So we kind of, Lori convinced him like don't you want to just be the money guy and schmooze the actors and enjoy your you know i think maybe he was doing i don't even think he was doing it to save money i think it was an ego trip for him like oh i've directed a movie now i can ad one and i think he was his feelings were hurt and i understand that um it was probably an unfair thing to do but there was no way i was going to otherwise finish the movie so yeah so i think there was a little bit of hurt feelings there yeah, so uh, we got CC up there pretty quick, <laughs> and the crew was like, like, it was like the Monty Python, and they all rejoiced. Yeah. 
Over the course of the 10-day shoot, there would be many more hurdles to overcome. It wasn't fucking snowing, which was killing me. Yeah, it was spring, and and what was left of the snow, um, you know, the, uh, it was kind of not great. The, the, there's a snow angel scene, I think, and, you know, they couldn't make snow angels, but they pretended and they laid down in the snow and tried. You know, the whole thing was supposed to take place in the snow, and we were shooting in January in the Sierras. You kind of thought there might be some snow there. So we had to, like, spend a third of a day driving to find snow just to get some snow stuff. So that was a problem. There was the fact that it was the 80s and the entire crew was totally stoned out of their minds on cocaine that um, worked for about hours 1 through 14, but number hours 14 through 18, things kind of fell apart. We had one guy who, one guy on the crew claimed that he'd hit a uh, an elk or a deer or something, but it turns out he'd just got drunk and drove off the road. <laughs> and then, of course, it's a horror film, and special effects and special effects makeup are expensive. So I hired a group of kids out of a school in L.A. that were in, like, a makeup school. And they, they, they tried their hardest, but um, I was definitely working around some very inexperienced talent on the, uh, the effects makeup uh, end of things. Because, you know, with, with the location and everything, we had actors showing up not on time and cars breaking down and just standard production problems. I remember I almost crashed a passenger van because I was driving it and the, the, the roads were so slick that we were just having those kind of problems. You know, like just, you know, not enough money to do it totally right, just enough to get there. You know, like a typical low budget. You always have enough to get the crew there, but you never have enough money to get the proper vehicles, get the proper... The logistics of Camp Nelson were, uh, you know, getting people up and down from there. It was, it was at the top of this mountain, people were getting altitude sickness. It was, it was pretty brutal. Despite the excitement from the locals over having a real Hollywood movie in their midst, issues with the film's subject matter began to arise. I think we sold it as a thriller, not a horror movie. I think we sold it as a... We, we fibbed a lot. I know, to just because it was such a conservative town, it was perfect for our needs. We, I remember we were definitely trying to keep them away from the set. Like they always wanted to visit. So I'd always set up, hey, we're doing a, we're doing a lunch scene or we're doing a, you know, I'd always invite them all on these tame family scenes at a picnic or whatever, you know, like, so they come and, they, and behind the scenes, there's guys building blood machine pumps, and, you know, and everything right where they can't see, but they're seeing a nice little family eating a picnic and they're, oh, this is so sweet. And then they'd go off and then we'd kill the kids or something, you know. We always, I always had a good look at what the schedule was and I would say close set and I'd always blame it on, you know, prima donna actor or something like that, you know. Oh, he, he doesn't like people in his eye line. The locals found out I was shooting sort of a blasphemous, blasphemous scene in the church. Uh, they wanted to like totally shut me down. Constantly, we were shooting stuff that I had probably led people to believe wasn't going to be near as bad as it was. And we were shooting at the church at night. We would have shot it at, we might have shot it during the day and just blacked out the windows uh, on a normal shoot. But we shot this at night so everyone in town would be in bed. We shot a pretty heavy scene in the church where I don't remember if it was a kill. I think there was a, some bad shit went on in the church and then we killed the person on the front steps of the church. I don't believe we killed him inside, but unfortunately, we had extras. 
and some of the extras were locals. Whatever we did in the church, again, I wasn't actually in the church when it happened, but I knew what we were doing. I knew it was not going to be good. So we, we shot it at night so most of the town would be asleep and there'd be no supervision. Like, they basically gave us the keys. I remember that. I remember having the keys. We all show up on set. I'm the one to open the door. I do remember that. My character, Larry, cuts a lot. And when we're going through the church scene, Blackie Devin's character, we're chasing each other. I have to say some stuff like nasty words in the church, and I think they got upset. So at the, I think they changed it. I don't remember what the final cut was, but instead of uh, mofo, I had to say Mother Superior. And instead of holy shit, I had to say holy shepherd. So <laughs> My son, you know, I'm going to kill you. I'll cut you so fast you never seen it coming. Mother Superior! Ah! Holy Shepherd! At midnight, we're screaming, and I'm saying, motherfucker, I don't think they particularly cared for that. Or holy shit. So, sorry, I have to say it to create the ambiance, as opposed to saying, you know, mofo, so I hope you don't mind. <laughs> and we shot the scene, and we got it. No busted, you know, no shutdown. Sheriff didn't show up, whatever. So the very next day, we're sitting at breakfast, and I'm eating, you know, we're talking about the night before, and I just get a tap on the shoulder, and I look, and the sheriff's got a fucking shotgun, and it's not pointed at my face, but it's it's threatening. And a couple of other cops are there, and they start bringing up what we did at the church. So they basically demanded, they wanted to confiscate the negative. So they wanted the film. So uh, Mitchell, me, and Lori started, we took them aside. We got, you know, we calmed them down. They were very pissed off. They were like, give us the fucking negative now, uh, if memory serves. And we took them outside. We talked to them. We talked to them. And I know Lori arranged sort of a approval on cut kind of thing. They said, look, this film is very expensive. Let us, let us get it processed. Let us cut the film. You know, sometimes you cut these films and you don't even use these scenes, you know, which is true. And uh, we said, I believe she wrote some sort of deal contract with them that they had a, a right of refusal on that scene. So I don't remember how it played after that, but I know that they didn't confiscate the neg. And I think she might have shown them dailies, but maybe not all of it. Or I don't remember how we've got a, we got out of that situation. But at the time, they wanted to shut down the whole production. But everything went back to normal after that. But we were under we were under a much more watchful eye. But that was the big scene. We we knew that was the scene that was going to get us kicked out of town, or we were going to survive. And so Lori was very good. She was really good at what she did. And uh, so she somehow convinced them to let us continue. But we had a lot more presence after that. Like we were under watchful eye. But one of the extras ratted us out. That's that's what we figured. And, uh, and that was an unfortunate situation because we needed them. We needed the extras and we knew that this, this could be a problem. But I remember that shotgun. I, I looked down the barrel at one point, I remember. And uh, it, it was it was kind of scary at the, at the time. But uh, so we continued shooting. And I don't remember how far along that was in the shoot. It seems, seems to be it was like a halfway point because we needed a lot more 
I know we needed a lot more to be done. And we brought a lot of business to the town. I mean, this diner was normally like dead and we packed it, you know, we fed two, three meals a day in this place. So we brought a lot of money to the town. And I think we brought that up in that conversation. Like, look, you know, we're both winning here. You know, your town is, just, you know, we, we, we're getting what we want. It was a pretty hairy morning and, and it was long enough in the shoot where we were all pretty exhausted at that point. So this was just like, really? You know, now we got to deal with this. I don't know if they ever had to see the final cut and then we were allowed to use it or if they just saw dailies and said, okay, that's not that bad. I don't remember how it played out. But I remember at the time, they were ready to arrest me, Laurie, and Mitchell. For what? I don't know what they would have cooked the books on on that. Yeah, and so that was, that was uh, I've still, I still tell that story to this day. After 10 days, a weary cast and crew wrapped filming and made the trek back to Los Angeles. Everybody there was a professional and was ready to move on to the next thing. And, you know, wanted to see the, uh, you know, the rough cut first answer print. Yeah, I mean, I actually shot it in 10 days. And then the 11th day was the movie came in at like 87 minutes and we wanted 90. So I shot once we were back, there's like a dreamy sequence, like in the middle of the movie which I, of course, I was out of a budget, so I shot in Super 8, this dream sequence that's all a, a point of view kind of thing. I don't even remember what the point of view was or whose dream it was, but uh, I shot this thing in Super 8 back in L.A. and then had it up to 35. So that was my, uh, my 11th day. And then that obviously brought you back to my, my art school filmmaking days. It was kind of a weird little sequence. After both Magic Castle and American Scream, I literally stayed in bed for like two weeks after. I was so worn out because they, they were just, it was hard work. You know, we were understaffed. And, you know, I had my fill of features after doing those two features. So, so I didn't really, the hours were, the hours were music video hours, but back to back to back to back. Where music video, you do one or two days, then you get a couple days to recharge. Noreen Zepp, Mitchell's wife, would come on as the film's editor. Probably never a good idea to work that closely uh, as a couple. But there we were. And she did a great job. I mean, you know, obviously our shooting ratio was about one and a half to one. So there weren't a lot of potential choices to make. But I think she squeaked out a pretty good edit, especially I think the whole scene to Orange Blossom Express towards the last reel where all the main action starting to unfold. I think cut to that piece of music really worked out great. Um, I was the Foley walker, so we went into a stage and... They just gave me all the toys, and I did all the, the foley and sound effects. I did a, like a cast and crew screening, and by that point, I was already working on another movie. A lot of people from that cast came and saw it, and I'm like, what do you think? Oh, I loved it. My wife hated it. And I was kind of like, wow. And now, now that I look back on it, I'm like, well, of course a lot of people hate it. But I'll tell you what, anybody who's tried to direct a movie with a union cast on location in 10 days for $200,000 might appreciate it more. I thought Mitchell did a really good job. I mean, you know, he's, he's, uh, I thought, you know, we all did a really good job. I, I was surprised it looked so good um, on such a low budget. I was um, pleased with some of the scenes where I'd written some of the dialogue. Generally speaking, I was very happy, and I, I, I had hoped at that point it would be the beginning of a real directing career for Mitchell. 
course, everybody thinks that if they make a clever horror movie, they're going to become rich and famous and all that. But in truth, truth of the matter, of course, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> a couple months after um, American Scream was shot, my, pa- my father died. And I remember I took my mother and that she saw with me, and she really enjoyed it. So it was kind of touching because I was able to take my mom after it. So he didn't ever get to see me in American Scream. He knew I got it because I think we did it in January. And I think we also did it in February. And then I don't know when it came out, but but, but it was neat that he knew I made it because it's like it was fun because he was one of my biggest fans. So it was kind of cool. <laughs> it's funny. I, w- I was kind of hoping I might be able to do more stuff like that. The way things turned out, it you know certainly makes more sense to get connected to a, a bigger hook on a production that's going to have a, a budget and a much longer pre-production and production. And because because of my background, I always thought, well, how come I'm not in those kind of goofy, you know, independent uh, films? It's just it's like, how did I? But it's I wasn't around any of those people, and then the people I was around were all you know pretty high functioning professionals in the film industry. So it was it was really funny how I, how I got in, and I sort of snuck in through a side door, and I thought, okay, now that I'm here, where's all the cool, kooky, independent people? And there's like we don't know who you are. <laughs> Matt Berlangi, who was one of the actors in it, was this Beverly Hills kid. His best friend across the street was the son of Jay Cantor, who was, you know, a famous Hollywood guy. I mean, he was Marlon Brando's agent. He was, at the time, I think he was president of MGM. So through Matt, we, I'm offered a screening at Jay Cantor's house. So we take the reels of film over to Jay's house. Some guy takes him at the door. And I'm sitting there talking to Matt and the kids about cars, which they know by numbers, which, like, you know, they say they drive a 535 or whatever. I had no idea what they're talking about. All of a sudden, Jay Cantor walks in, sits down. He's wearing his bathrobe, his slippers. He's got a big bowl of popcorn. And the wall opens up. A screen comes down from the ceiling. And there's like a union projectionist back there screening the movie. And the whole time, all I can do is look at Jay Cantor's furry feet in these slippers, waiting for them to get up and leave the room. And fortunately, his kids are cracking up, and they seem to be loving it. So he stayed throughout the whole time. The only thing he said to me as we're leave- as I'm leaving is he goes, I'd like this for MGM home video. We'll, we'll have somebody contact you. So um, I'm like in cloud nine. I get this this call, and I said, "Well, you need to talk to Jerry Tannenbaum because he's the he owns the property." And Jerry told him, "No, no, no. I only made this for my home video company, so I'll be keeping this film." Which just crushed me because obviously his little home video company, you know, probably got it in about twelve stores. But ultimately, I think he felt like he had something he could make some money off of. Jerry Tenenbaum would release the American Scream on video cassette under his 21st Genesis video banner on April 21st, 1989. There's much to unravel within the VHS cover artwork, 
It grabbed my attention at 10 years old in the horror section of our local video store. A mother and father pose happily against a snowy country landscape, arms wrapped around each other lovingly, wearing goofy smiles that match their equally goofy wardrobe. Two teenage girls cower in fear at their feet, while a man in black has a knife raised behind them, ready to strike. Another male teen swings a snow shovel in an effort to block the knife-wielding maniac. A lone clown stands in the snow-capped distance with a sign that reads, The joke's on you. The Norman Rockwell meets 80 slasher feeling it gave off is burned into my memory. I had so many posters of it, and I even framed one, but I don't know what I did with it, because it was also pretty awesome to be on a poster. Because uh, I've never been on a poster before. I had done a, a, an earlier poster for it where I wanted a woman who was basically like vacuum packed in like an American flag, sort of like this screaming face, like as if, you know, was vacuum packed. And uh, we did kind of a prototype of it. And uh, next thing I knew, Jerry had all the artwork redone with this, which. Yeah, I've kind of grown to, I've grown to like it well enough. wasn't what I anticipated, but it's probably better. Once, when my daughter was really young and she was living with me, and I had to have a nanny, and then because I was, you know, working on another project, my hours were crazy, so the nanny would bring her child. Actually, she had two younger kids, and I said, "Yeah, just." If you can be here and what you need is to bring your kids, just bring everyone. And So anyway, I come home one day and they had watched that film. It's like, oh, we saw your, your dad was in a movie. Let's watch it. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I said, you guys watch it? I was like, yeah, it was funny. I was like, okay, <laughs> let's speak no more of this. <laughs> I went to, um, it was called Video Journeys in Silver Lake. It was, it was the big video store in, in Silver Lake and, um, at the time when people used to go to video stores. Anyways, I went in there and I was looking through the rack and there I saw the American Scream, which shocked me that they had it. So I took it out, I rented it, I brought it back, set the videos on the counter and the guy, the clerk looks at the title and he goes, Shakes his head. He goes, sorry, man. We just rent them. We don't make them. And I said, yeah, I know. I made it. <laughs> it was just kind of like this moment of awkward silence between us. You know, my friends all saw it. And they kind of thought it was a hoot because they know me and they could see my, my sense of humor in it. They could see my visual style in it. So I think they were all generally pretty nice to, it, to me about it. You know, obviously, I've seen some of the online stuff. Some of it, I kind of go, ooh, yikes, I didn't think it was that bad. But some people get it, some people don't, and I think it's that kind of movie. I certainly don't fault anybody that, that would see it and go, seriously? Mitchell Linden and Jerry Tannenbaum would lose touch shortly after the film's release. From there, I spent 10 more years in Hollywood making movies. I did pretty much everything on a movie you could possibly hope to do, from makeup to lighting to camera to editing, and eventually got into the technology side through a, a fluke where I ended up 
developing systems um, with the BBC and Avid and ESPN and Fox Sports and on and on until I ended up working at some advertising agencies, media companies, um, most recently 20th Century Fox, and currently I am at Avid. Jerry Tenenbaum would return to the adult film industry for the remainder of his career. So I, I guess thematically what I was trying to say is that there's this separation that's fairly vast between sort of childhood and teen years and becoming an adult. And it feels like when you're a teen, the adults are totally against you. They can't be trusted. And what I try to do is create a world where I heighten that tension. But at the end, ultimately, the kids become sort of the very thing they they hated. They become the adults. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and my take on it is like you had to be thrown to become an adult, even if you weren't ready to survive. Because if you didn't want to become an adult, you're dead. I, I, I wasn't. I was probably a little too abstract with that, but that's what I was thinking. That's just sort of what fell out of the end of the pencil, as my father, who's a designer, would say. You can't write something or create a, a creative work without it being influenced by who you are and how you think. But I wasn't overtly, you know, like like the Woody Allen thing. If you uh, you want to send a message, call uh, call Western Union. I wasn't. It wasn't like there wasn't something I had to get off my chest. Yeah, it's kind of the story that I found. Mitchell still has hope he can track Jerry down in order to purchase the film's original negative. Well, I'm really happy there are people like you out there who are um, interested in this kind of thing because I think it is a whole other history that gets lost. This, the so-called B-movies are often overlooked and often lost, and sometimes they're, they contain some real scenes that are some really, really gems. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great experience. I made a lot of great lifelong friends out of it. Uh, you know, I don't get to see Mitchell. I haven't seen him in so long, but... Just because of you, we've reconnected, so we've been talking, which is great. Both of those shoots, the Magic Castle and that, were, you know, early points of my life. So I look back on incredible fond memories. And at the time, we we all thought that this is what we were going to do. And then we kind of all just went our separate ways after. I mean, after American Screen, that was it for me on Features. I, I was just like, music videos. So I pretty much for 10 years did nothing but music videos. F- features are hard, hard work when you don't have the budget. You know, I, I directed a feature that had a $33 million budget. That was a blast. But when you're these uh, these little ones, it's it's a it's a passion. It's a, you know, and you have to be young. But you know, I look back on those, both those jobs, these early points of my career where I learned a ton and got paid to do it, which is great. So that, that's the other good thing is, you know, I, I got to work in the time of film where, you know, now you shoot them on iPhones, it's, it's ridiculous. It was kind of exciting to get this call because I kind of forgot about it. You know, I mean, like I said, every once in a while I'll see a clip of me or, you know, I'll talk to Mitchell and, you know, I'll reminisce a little bit about it. But it it, it was just, it was a really fun movie making. To me, when you see it, it kind of reflects that, you know. And it it, it was just, Mitchell was very creative because it was kind of a, and the way Phil and him wrote it, it's it's a weird film, but it's a good film. 
But I have to tell you, like, the main thing about you interviewing me and Mitchell is it's rewarding to know that someone appreciated it and it didn't go unnoticed to everyone. And then you feel like there was... So that makes me feel good because sometimes I'm thinking no one would ever know what this film is, you know? It was kind of a treasure, but because it didn't get very far, not many people could experience it, you know? So it's kind of neat that you were able to watch it and we were able to talk about it. You know, and I think it was a little ahead of its time, too. But unfortunately, like you said, I don't think it got the screen time that it should have. This is like the last film I thought I would ever be talking to anyone about down the road. Very few people have ever even asked me about it, you know, sort of along the way. Like, no one seemed to know about it. It didn't show up anywhere. It wasn't like hidden gym, you know, pulled from the... But maybe now it's the, the fact that because it was so obscure and unavailable that there's some kind of fascination with it. I don't know. I had really a, a positive experience working on that, which is not always true. A number of the productions I've worked on, I've worked on a lot longer. And so there's time to have an emotional roller coaster. Whereas because this one was so short and it was just kind of, I mean, we weren't just on location. We were living in the location too. It was just something about it. It had kind of a community theater, you know, we're all in this. And you, you kind of, it, was, it was fun to do. So my memories of actually doing it are, are good. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the, uh, it's like my fair-haired stepchild. I have a certain fondness for it. I, I'm able to see it for what it is, on the other hand. And ultimately, what I've kicked myself for for 30 years since I made that movie well, for one thing, you know, if you don't have a good script, you're never going to have a good movie. And I had a script I cranked out in a week. I wish I would have spent more time thinking about what I wanted to do before I did it. I knew I was really quick on my feet. You could hand me some pages and I'll find a way to shoot it in no time. But what would have been nice is to really think through the script and make sure I had a great story. And my second regret is... I had a cameraman, a DP, who I worked with many times in the past, who was super talented, but he was also very traditional and kind of old school in the way he went about things. And I kind of wish I would have relied more on my sort of art school chops of working much looser and much... I, I became constrained by the process so that I had to work ridiculously fast because I allotted all the time for the technical process to unfold. Where if I was to do it again now, I would allot very little time. For one thing, you can. I mean, with video now as a, a capture medium, you, all you need is a freaking exposure, and then you can dial it in later. So you could have spent much more time with story, with actors, creating a mood, creating a scene. Instead, I gave up way too much to technical process. But I hate to end on a bummer. So I will say I still think it's kind of a hoot. And I had a ton of fun doing it. And I had a lot of great friends around me. And it's no masterpiece, but hopefully it's 90 minutes of fun. The American Scream exists today as a forgotten gem, lost in time with all those independently produced titles that never made the jump from VHS to DVD. 
films released by production companies who disappeared into obscurity, taking their catalogs of titles along with them. I was able to watch it once again by patiently waiting for a used copy to pop up on eBay. Otherwise, the film lives on in the memories of those who made it and those lucky enough to find it at their local video store. But there is hope. Mitchell and I spoke recently and he appears to have tracked down the master print in storage in Los Angeles. So hopefully the American Scream will be able to be seen by a modern audience, one with an eclectic appreciation of the slasher films to come out of the 1980s, an audience that I'm happy to include myself in. Theme by Joseph Powers. Additional voiceover provided by Oliver Garrett. This has been Real Collections. The show was researched, written, and edited by Edward Beasley. You can find him on Twitter at LongLiveBuck, as well as Instagram at RealCollectionsPod. And stay tuned as there are more episodes on the way, covering eclectic and obscure stories from film history that he enjoys researching, and hopefully you'll enjoy hearing about. Long live Buck. Oh, hey, hey, you got a little stiffy? <laughs> you young guys. <laughs>